Welcome to another edition of School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, joined once again, as always, by Chris and Adam. Guys, things are looking a little bright here today. You know, we're a couple days after we normally record, but still, an Everton win in the books on Saturday. And a lot to be uh, excited about, or, or encouraged about at least, even though we're here towards the end of the season. Uh, definitely a good performance from the Toffees. Uh, wouldn't you think? I, I wrote on uh, Saturday. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uncomfortable because, yeah. uh, I, I just felt, uh, pretty much unabashedly good. And I didn't know that that was a way I was allowed to feel is the thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote on Saturday in, in, in the recap on our website that I don't know what, who, who that Everton was and what they had done with the old Everton. It was very strange. Yeah, it definitely was uh, something we're not used to seeing. And, you know, to just get things started off here, I mean, we jumped all over West Ham in the first half, especially, you know, those first 20 minutes or so. What do you guys think – we'll start with you, Adam. What do you think went right that allowed Everton to control, like, the opening stages of this match? Well, I think that, that you do have to lead off by saying that, that individual performances really across the team sheet um, – we're very good, and we've seen bits and pieces of quality from these guys throughout the season, uh, and it was nice to see them all kind of come together uh, at once. That said, I have no idea what Manuel Pellegrini was trying to do. Um, he he kind of sent West Ham out in this weird, like, 5-3-2, where the wingbacks were pushed way the frick high up the pitch, and the midfield three was uh, Manuel Lanzini, Pedro Obiang, and, uh, and Robert Snodgrass. And the thing about that is that uh, Obiang can't pass, and Lanzini and Snodgrass are uh, not strong physically. Uh, and basically, Adrissa Gay and uh, Andre Gomes just decided, we're going to take the ball from you every time it gets near you. And then there was tons of space to get in behind down the flanks because Cresswell and uh, and Zabaleta were pushed so far up the pitch. So a, a lot of what Pellegrini did tactically played into Everton's strengths, you know, uh, the, the ability to win the ball in the midfield and the ability to, to build in the wide areas. Uh, and that just happened to coincide with a lot of very good individual performances, especially in the early going. Uh, yeah, I think the individual performances are certainly important. I, I was also encouraged because I think that this match was what you kind of envision when you look at what Marco Silva is purportedly trying to do and what it what it would look like if it was humming on all cylinders. You know, they're they're pressing the ball, they're playing through the wings. They're not whipping the ball into the box necessarily. We're playing it on the ground, be it to Bernard. We're using our physical dominance with Zuma and Keane on set pieces. Like it was, it just ticked one box after another to where you think, Hey, maybe, maybe this is worth sticking out for another year or two and see what we can really get going. And it was so nice to see Kurt Zuma, who is a, a big lad. He's not Yerimina big, but, but he's big uh, and he gets up to a lot of headers. Uh, it was nice to see him head one straight, uh, which if I really had one complaint about Kurt Zuma this entire season, it's that uh, he should have more goals than he does. 
Uh, well, so and remember, to, to see Michael, Ke- one. Michael Keane scored a header for England that was also quite good uh, earlier that week. So Yeah, uh, so maybe, uh, I mean, it's <laughs> it's a little late now, but bet, better late than never, especially for, for Zuma, you know, if he's not back. But let's, uh, let's not dwell on the bad so early in this show. That's going to just make me sad. I'm going to miss Kurt. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to miss him even more when Yerry Mina keeps pulling a hamstring or whatever he's doing. Columbia is now managed by Martin (laughs) O'Neill. I think it's safe to say that a lot of us are going to miss Kurt. Uh, He moves on or moves back uh, in the summer. And, you know, you know, he's one of those players and and we thought we just talked about it, how there's a lot of things that happen in this game that we've been looking to see. And it kind of gives you hope moving forward and not just only the, Marcus Silva way, but for some players, and one of those players is Bernard. He had the he had the second goal of the match, and this one, you know, wasn't much more than a tap-in, but well-deserved, you know, the way he's been playing. And, you know, I know we've been talking a lot about Ademola Lookman and how we'd hope to see more chances from him, but is it Bernard now who will be happy to see on the field, him getting a start, you know, with the way he's been playing? He has been playing, uh, you know, quite well recently, and definitely deserves um, the opportunity to continue taking over that that role uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, I, I think so, and it's kind of tough, right, because Lookman hasn't done anything to deserve being dropped, and he should certainly be playing more. But as we've discussed numerous times on this show and on our site, you can't really play two creative wingers at one time, and Theo Walcott is kind of performed himself out of the rotation. So you're left with Richarlison on one side and either Bernard or Lookman on the other. And at this point, Bernard is playing so well that Silva is justified at least somewhat in saying, well, I, I kind of need to leave him in there. And, and I think that the big thing that we've seen from Bernard in the last couple of weeks that kind of sets him apart uh, is how well he's, he's worked with uh, Luca Digne on the left wing. Uh, Dini is such an important player for this team because he he really does have so much quality going forward, and we're so reliant on the wide areas that it, we need to be able to to bring him into the game because I think you can probably make an argument that of all the wingers and fullbacks on this team, Luka Dini might be the best creator of the bunch. So to be able to have somebody on that left wing who has a really good relationship with him is is massive and not to take away from what Bernard does you know of his own accord but it's doubly important when he can also continue to to bring another very important player into the game yeah so I I don't want to get too off track of from our uh, program outline here but I'm glad you brought up Lucas Denier because I have a couple of uh, a couple of numbers for you guys so uh, Lucas Denier is now 10th in the Premier League in um, chances created, and this is from both open play and set pieces. He is ahead of David Silva. He's ahead of Bernardo Silva. He's ahead of Christian Eriksen, Felipe Anderson, Paul Pogba. Gilfie Sigurdsson is 8th, um, which may surprise some of the Gilfie haters out there. And the... WhoScored.com has this list that shows us the most common combinations of assists to goal scorers in the league, and Luca Digne to Dominic Calvert-Lewin is in the top ten. Really? Huh. Yep. I, I, I'm not surprised. Obviously, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm 
a huge, huge fan of Dinya. I'm, I'm surprised that uh, uh, that's got to be like every goal Calvert-Lewin has scored this year, which now I'm starting to think about and thinking, yeah, kind of, kind of well, every goal that he scored has come <laughs> off Dinya's foot. <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, the only thing that I would add would be, A, Calvert-Lewin has scored more, more goals than you think. He's got nine, uh, not all in the league, but um, and he's really good in the air, and Dinya's service from the left is yeah. usually spectacular. Agreed. Yeah, and, and, you know, I saw a picture online that, you know, kind of made me think a little bit uh, with the way Dinya and Bernard have been playing um, of recent weeks. And it was a picture of Baines and Pinar. And, you know, that left, that link up down the left is, you know, it's, it's you know, obviously hasn't had the uh, consistency that the Baines and Pinar uh, relationship had. But, you know, it's something to look at, something certainly that could be, you know, if Bernard can keep this form and Dinya can keep doing the things he's been doing all season, certainly something that we can look at for uh, years to come. Uh, it, it, it is, and I'm excited about it too. I would just – I want to go back to my negative Nancy shell here for a minute and say that I was posting tweets to that exact same Baines Pinar nature last season with Walcott and Seamus Coleman, and there. well. Yeah, well, I, I think that – uh, I would say that that Bernard has probably got a little bit more Pinar in him than uh, than Walcott does, just because uh, you know, not that Pinar was was bad in front of goal, but I definitely thought of him more uh, as a creator, like I would have Bernard, than a finisher, like I would have Walcott. For what it's worth. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very fair, very fair. But moving on, uh, in the, and we'll talk about the second half now here. And Everton, not quite as dominant, but West Ham never really got into the game either. They were never really, uh, you know, gave us any real um, problems as well. What did we think of the second half performance here after the, you know, really quick-paced, going-at-West-Ham type first half? Adam? Well, I think that, that one of the major things was that Pellegrini moved into a 4-3-3, um, which was, you know, a, a little more, brought a little more stability, uh, a little less of like every time his team turned the ball over, you felt like Everton was going to run down the field and score. Um, but I also think that given what happened against Newcastle a couple of weeks ago and given just kind of the unpredictable perhaps is a good way to put it, uh, nature of, of this team. It was really encouraging to to see a, a group of players that went out and, you know, didn't take any unnecessary chances, but was on the ball pretty consistently, was smart on the ball, didn't give up anything silly, and just kind of professionally saw out a game. And, and that's something that we've not seen enough of when we've had good starts. Um, so it, it's it's a big step in the right direction, especially if it's something that can be replicated going forward. Right. And to your point about seeing out the game, uh, even when West Ham were trying to get back into it and kind of pushing for a a first goal and, you know, that kind of thing, according to expected goals, Everton basically gave up something adjacent to nothing throughout the entire match in terms of chances for the Hammers. And that's that's pretty encouraging, especially when you consider that they did have a couple of set pieces um, throughout the afternoon. And the other thing that struck me about the second half was that 
they were a little bit late, but Marco Silva's substitutions I thought were pretty spot on, and especially and I mentioned this to Adam on Saturday, the bringing on Tom Davies for Gilfie Sigurdsson, that's ex- pretty much exactly the role that you want to see Davis in, where he he's not being relied upon to get goals, but he can kind of move into that most advanced midfield position and harass and harry the opponent and and, you know if he needs to pick out a pass he can but you're not trying to run the whole game plan around him and i thought i think that's kind of perfect for him yeah and you know despite things falling off we did get the win and honestly a little bit of it as well was you know the fact that you know we did fall off a little bit man uh west ham did change things up but uh we still stuck in there kept a clean sheet um, which is always good, and, and finish that one off 2 nothing. And with that win, Everton's now only uh, four points out of seventh place as of today, time of recording on, on Tuesday. Um, and the potential Europa League spot is still up for, ups for, gra- up for grabs. Manchester City will have to win the FA Cup for us to, uh, you know, if we finish in seventh for that to become an Europa League spot. But, Chris, how realistic is it to hope that Everton can finish in seventh at this point? <laughs> Well, before today, I would have told you it was pretty reasonable to think about. Um, after Wolverhampton beat Manchester United and Watford kind of mopped the floor with Fulham, I, I'm not really thinking that's something that we should get our hopes up about because, you know, we're, what, four points out with six games remaining and we still have three of the top six left to play. I I don't see that happening. It's uh, it's It's a tough... It's not impossible. It's it's difficult, you know. And I think uh, that when when I look at whatever Tin Scott left, uh, where we're at Fulham in two weeks and home against Burnley uh, the week before the last week of the season, and, and those, you know, if there's going to be any chance, they've got to be wins right off the top, as probably does the the trip to Crystal Palace. Uh, on April 27th. And then as, as Chris alluded to, we've still got Arsenal at home, United at home, uh, and Spurs away. Uh, I, I would not get my hopes up on that Spurs away game at the end of the, at the end of the season, especially since Spurs may have a Champions League spot, uh, up for grabs at that stage still. Uh, but, you know, if, if we can, get a, a replication of the performance that we saw against Chelsea a couple of weeks ago against Arsenal and against United. Uh, you know, I think that both team, both of those teams are still beatable. Obviously we saw today that United is, is beatable. Uh, you know, they, they played Ashley Young at center back. So that is a thing that exists in this, the year of our Lord 2019. <laughs> not, not only was he, uh, pretty much exclusively at fault for Wolves' first goal, he also got sent off later. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I don't look at, at any game but the, the last one, but the, the match against Spurs as something that is, you know, insurmountable. Based on the form of the last two weeks, I think it's quite possible. Based on the form of the whole season and the fact that we've not really been able to string anything together for as long as we have to see here, maybe not so much. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously, like we've mentioned, this Europa League spot is going to be tough to come by. But if we can, if if Everton can finish this season strong, finish on a high note, show some sort of consistency, that's probably a pretty good thing for them. And that probably means 
good things moving forward. It'll give us something to look forward to going into next season as opposed to, you know, showing a lot of that inconsistency, especially since we're playing some of those those top six teams. Yeah, I agree. And I think that more than anything, at least for me personally, it, it kind of puts me a little bit at ease about the Marco Silva project. Mm-hmm. Um, because for a lot of the season, we've kind of been wandering in the wilderness thinking, you know, what is Marco trying to do? Does he actually have any ideas outside of his, you know, press in the 4-3-3? But, you know, if you look at it now, they've won three out of their past five games. Um, at least three more of the the final six games are winnable. And if you go into the end of the season with that, even if you don't qualify for Europe, I think that I, I would personally be comfortable bringing him back and being pretty excited next August. Yeah, I, I think that this is the first time in probably three months that I have felt like, oh, maybe Marco Silva isn't a fraud. Um, it's still a huge maybe for me. I still don't really have any faith in him. Um, but based on that, the form of the last couple of weeks, and, and it certainly if they can, can jump to seventh and grab the Europa League, League spot, then that's kind of a, a, a position where you go, okay, you know, maybe he's on to something. Yeah, and we talk about Europa League and, and qualifying. Obviously, it's something that, is good for the state of Everton. But Adam, you know, toward the end of the 2016-2017 season, you argued that Everton was better off not qualifying for Europa League. They ultimately did. You know, it's good to see his consistency. It'd be great to finish in seventh. But what are the drawbacks of qualifying for the Europa League? And would it really benefit us overall to uh, qualify for this tournament? Yeah, you know, at, at that time... um that that season, my, my argument was was based on a couple of different things. Um, one, that Everton team needed a lot of help in terms of its depth if it wanted to be able to compete at a Europa League level. Um, but we also still needed a replacement for Romelu Lukaku. There were a lot of moving parts, and uh, I felt like the the Europa the Europa League um, project uh, kind of forced. Everton's hand a little bit in in how it had to go about uh, recruitment. I think obviously we, we brought in a ton of guys that off season, uh, and then basically cut the the length of training camp in half because the like second qualifying round or whatever the hell it is that that seventh place spot got them into started in like the middle of friggin' it was even early August I think. No, um, no, no, we we played those both of those legs in July. Believe it or not. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it is was for a, a team that you know that needed <laughs> a lot of integrating of new parts um, was problematic. And, and then you know the the final thing is is something that every uh, big team that gets dragged into the Europa League complains about, which is basically that it congests <laughs> the schedule. Now, obviously, Everton's not you know going to complain about uh, having those games, but we saw in sixteen seventeen. We saw uh, when the the team went to the Europa League uh, under Roberto Martinez, the team was absolute garbage in games after, uh, directly after a Europa League match, you know, a game the same week as a a Thursday Europa League game. So I I think that those are kind of the issues that you face. Um, But Chris and I were were discussing this uh, during the week. And I think it's interesting because 
a lot of those concerns that I had at that point um, are are lessened uh, a little bit uh, this time around. And I'm curious. I I, I want to get Chris's opinion on on what the those concerns and how they might be different uh, in you know 2019 than they were in in 2016 or 2017. So. It's interesting, right? Because I think that we have more players who are better now than we did in 2016. My concern stems from the fact that Marco Silva has a little bit of Maurizio Sarri in him in that he seems to only trust, let's say, 15 players, 14, 15, somewhere in there. You know, because you see the same substitutions every week. It's either, it's usually Walcott, Cenk Tosin, and Tom Davis. Um, with the occasional Morgan Schneiderlin sprinkled in. And if if you're truly going to be competitive on multiple fronts, be it Europe or the domestic cups, you're kind of going to have to get past that, right? And I don't see at least this season where he's been able to do that. Yeah, and, and I, I think that the – and this is obviously very forward-looking and obviously, you know, presumptuous about them getting the spot or, or, or not. But I think were they to be in that situation, you know, where they're they're balancing multiple competitions, you could argue that the depth in the squad to handle that already exists really at, at every position but but center back and, and maybe right back, depending on, on how you feel about John Joe Kenny, right? I'm not missing a, a, a big... Uh, hole in the squad. Uh, no, my only concern would be, I think, um, at attacking midfielder. I, I don't particularly trust Kieran Dowell at this point in his career. He's not done particularly well on loan this season, and Marco Silva was pretty happy to send him out to Sheffield. I think, it, you know, if if Nikola Vlasic came back and they signed a center back and a right back in the offseason, then I'd be perfectly happy with it. But those three spots um, in, are ones that do concern me. Yeah, uh, and I I tend to agree. Uh, I think Vlasic would be if we can get Vlasic back, uh, given the way that he has played in Russia, uh, and also you know the some of the comments he's made and and the clear you know attitude toward where things stand right now. I think it's a huge coup, but it's also one I don't necessarily. Um, yeah, I'm. Think will I'm I'm not going to bank on it, but it's not just the Russian league that he's been performing in. You know, he's yeah. diced Real Madrid to, to pieces on uh, two different occasions. It's Believe it or not, Gilfie Sigurdsson is not a cyborg. Um, I, I know that's kind of tough to, to process considering <laughs> the amount of minutes that he plays, but that position more than any other um, just troubles me a little bit. Yeah, uh, agreed. And uh, The other thing that I, I do want to, point to to just kind of wrap up thinking about you know Europa League and and its worth to Everton at this point I, I think both uh in the Martinez era uh, Europa League adventure and in the Koeman era uh Europa League adventure I, I think there was a sense because of some of the struggles that we saw from clubs like Spurs and United and and Arsenal at, at various stages and, and Chelsea too um that top four uh, and and Champions League therein might might be something that was gettable for Everton. And, and I just, uh, and I'm curious what you guys think, I, I just don't see a way, given the the gulf in in talent and, and resources, uh, that Everton, you know, finds a way into the top four 
even in the most lucky of scenarios, you know, for the next five or more years. And that gives a little more value to the potential of a Europa League extravaganza. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I would even go so far as to say that fifth or sixth is attainable in the next couple of years. I don't think that Arsenal are in a good long-term place. I don't, I certainly don't think that Chelsea are, but the dirty little secret about the Europa League is that it really means more to the fans and their mindset than it does Farhad Mashiri getting extra money or, you know, being able players uh, potentially signing with Everton and looking at us being like, oh, well, they're playing in Kazakhstan on a Thursday night. That sounds really exciting. It, yeah. <laughs> it's just not the case that you're going to be able to pull in more players or spend more money in the transfer window if you're in the Europa League group stage. And I know that's that's kind of opposite the common wisdom, but. I completely agree. I've never, ever <laughs> bought Europa League uh, participation as a uh, as a recruitment strategy. Um, but, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, I'm still a little bit on the fence, ultimately, about whether it be a, a good thing or, or a bad thing. Um, there are definitely elements of both, but I, in 16-17, in I was actively, you know, rooting against them qualifying because I, I really saw it as a problem with the state that the club was in at that point. I, I don't see that here. I, I can see it as a neutral thing and as a thing where there's some hesitance, but I, I personally don't don't see as many issues with the Europa League and Everton now as I might have a couple of years ago. No, and I think that's right, because if you compare the two squads, I think it's pretty safe to say that the first team talent, you know, the first uh, 12, 13, 14 players are considerably better than what we went into that year with. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think... Obviously, I think the next uh, or the final games of the season will really be the telling fact as to whether, you know, if we do end up getting a Europa League spot, if, you know, the positives do outweigh the negatives. Obviously, like you guys have mentioned, we're in a better spot. It seems like with the reports that have come out recently that Everton have a plan for the transfer window and that both Brands and Silver are on the same track. So it's not going to be a lot of, you know, in that 2016-2017, the offseason, of that 2016-2017 season. Um, when the transfer window came around, um, I believe that was the transfer window where it seemed like we were just buying a bunch of players just to buy a bunch of players because we needed them. Um, Steve Walsh was in, what, Italy, while Ronald was scouting in the Netherlands. Portugal, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Everyone was on vacation, was, I don't know. That was the off-season where we bought uh, not one, not two, not three, but four number 10s. Yes. Maybe, uh, Davy Klassen, Gilfie Sigurdsson, and, uh, Vlasic there at the end. Exactly. And, you know, it seems like there might be a little bit more of a, a plan this year and an idea this year going into the transfer window. But, you know, Everton can get in the Europa League, I think, and still not show us, I guess, a little bit of confidence that you need to, you know, succeed through the Europa League and be able to play in both Europa League and, and, um, uh, and, and the domestic league. But I think if Everton could show a form of consistency instead of, you know, kind of backing into some wins that they shouldn't have, um, and, and, you know, just show a form of consistency, show a plan on the field, um, and on the pitch and, and then show it off the pitch as well. I think that would obviously 
lead me to believe that things are a little better off if we do end up making the Premier League. But I think that's something that may have to be decided or uh, something that may be more clear uh, once this season ends. But moving on finally to, uh, you know, just Arsenal, our next uh, our next match. And Arsenal, they've been pretty good. Haven't lost a game in the Premier League since February 3rd, and they kept themselves right in the top four race. Chris, what is Arsenal doing right to keep the pace with the other uh, Champions League contenders, and do they have a chance to finish in the top four, or do you realistically see them finishing in the top four? So uh, to your first question, I think there's two things. Um, having Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Alexander Lacazette helps a lot. That that kind of patches over a lot of holes. The second thing is I think Arsenal benefit from the problems that uh, Spurs and Chelsea are having at the moment. You know, Spurs, the Spurs last five games, um, they've lost four and drawn one. They haven't won in, they haven't won, excuse me, in, in five matches. And, you know, Chelsea are kind of all up and down and all over the place. I just don't see a lot about this Arsenal team that excites me, that concerns me in terms of playing them at Goodison Park. So I I, I think they can finish in the top four, but it's it's almost going to be one of those situations where it's by default more than anything else. Yeah, you know, I think that obviously Spurs have had issues with injury. Uh, Manchester United has that issue where they don't have any good defenders. Um, and Chelsea's issue is that, uh, their manager is a fraud and they bought Gonzalo, not bought, loaned Gonzalo Iguain for reasons. Um, which when, you know, put in that lens, all of a sudden, Arsenal, you know, the fact that Arsenal it starts Maitland Niles and Kolasinac as fullback or as wingbacks, uh, in front of a back three that has two bad players and a left back. Well, I mean, yeah, but they, they, they have some defenders and, and they have some healthy players and they don't have Gonzalo Higuain. Um, it's, so, uh, it's Adam's favorite strategy. When you have no good center backs, you should start three of them. That it, it's, <laughs> and that every friggin' manager this side of the sun does it too. They go, man, I got no good center backs. So the solution to, to solving the issue in the center of my defense is to put more bad players there. Well, uh, uh, Ole Gunnar uh, Solskjaer did it this afternoon. He's- and, yes, just fresh off of that new contract, he decided, you know what the solution to my team's defensive woes are? Ashley Young, the center back, just as Unai Emery has decided that Nacho Monreal, the center back, is the answer for Arsenal. Now, for for Arsenal, you know, having... Lacazette and, and Aubameyang up top obviously cra- uh, covers over a, a lot of cracks. Having a uh, a healthy uh, uh, Aaron Ramsey obviously also uh, helps a lot. Not something that Arsenal will have in the long term, but that's another conversation. Um, so yeah, you know, I think that even with their enormous flaws uh, at the back and and in the midfield. They still manage to have less flaws than an injured Tottenham and, and Man United and, and Chelsea have. And I think there's a good reason to feel relatively confident that they'll finish in the top four as a result. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm just looking at the standings right now and, uh, you look at the last five of some of the teams, um, 
that are in that race. And uh, it's Tottenham's, not great. Lost, Tottenham's lost four of their last five. Um, so things are not looking good for them. Things are definitely looking down. Um, Arsenal has, on the other hand, won four of their last five. And like we mentioned, um, hasn't lost since February 3rd. So obviously because like we, like, every, like we both, we all just mentioned, um, you know, it, it may just be a fact that Arsenal is just playing well at the right time and may sneak into that, that top four spot because everybody else is having a horrible, horrible end. And, well, the- especially while United and, and Spurs yeah, exactly. also That's I both, you know, are both going to be, uh, competing in the Champions League uh, in, yeah. in the coming weeks. Uh, Arsenal does uh, have a Europa League quarterfinal uh, against Napoli uh, the Thursday after Everton and then the, the following Thursday as well. But I, I don't necessarily think that Emery and, and Arsenal particularly care about the Europa League. Uh, if it was their best path into getting to the Champions League, uh, or their only path to getting into the Champions League, they would care a lot more uh, about it as as United did uh, under Mourinho. Uh, but I think that for them, the the uh, the champ the excuse me Premier League path to the Champions League is clearer and simpler than the Europa League one. So I, I don't really think that they'll sink any kind of significant focus uh, or energy into that the way that United and Spurs obviously will. The Champions League. Right, because if you look at it, you look at uh, the Premier League success in the Champions League this year, if you're Tottenham or Manchester United, you can kind of get get yourself hopeful that you could kind of make a run there more so than you already have. Like, you know, there's, what, three, four Premier League teams left in the Champions League. So I, I think that, to your point, both Spurs and United will feel justified in throwing more resources at that competition than Arsenal will the Europa League. Yeah, that's that's a very fair statement as well, and uh, it definitely be a cer- certainly interesting to see how things play out um, towards the end of the season uh, for those top four teams. Just as a neutral uh, fan, uh, you know, just someone who loves watching soccer on a regular basis or football on a regular basis, uh, you know, it's gonna be a good it's gonna be a good end to the season. But call it soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure everybody's happy. I'm just trying, trying to please everybody here, right? <laughs> but getting back to getting back to Everton and um and Arsenal and the and previewing that matchup, you know they hung around with Arsenal when they played in uh, London earlier in the season, but you know ultimately lost two nothing, and we all know how that happened. A couple uh, a goal that you know was a, a freak. Thing that ended up happening, and then a quick goal after that uh, caused us to lose two nothing. But what does Everton need to do in this match that they failed to do in the previous match with Arsenal uh, to get a W uh, and get three points here? I, I think that the um, the blueprint ultimately may look a lot like it did against West Ham um, because Arsenal has has pretty reliably in the last couple of weeks been been rolling out in a, a similar kind of looking 5-3-2. It's more like a 5-2-1-2 uh, than West Ham's 5-3-2 was this week. But it, it's got the same uh, gaps in it in that the, the fullbacks are going to probably push high. Uh, I'm not particularly high on Kolasinac or, or Maitland-Niles either going forward or, or in defense. So 
I, I think that looking to win the ball off of Xhaka or Ramsey or Guendouzi or Torreira or whoever the hell uh, Unai rolls out in the center of midfield and then looking to strike quick uh, in the wide areas it is the way that Everton can have the most success and, and the fact that they've just done it against a similarly set up, although not as talented, uh, West Ham team is encouraging. Right. And the the more, as usual, I'm going to go the simpler route here. I'm just thinking about from the last Arsenal match, the the finishing or lack thereof that Everton had. Um, early on in that game, Dominic Calvert-Lewin came pretty much in free and clear down the right side and, and wasn't able to score. And, you know, you look at it, uh, Obama Yang's second goal in that game was offside. Lacazette's first goal, you're not going to really do anything about. That's just a kind of a moment of class. But if Calvert-Lewin scores that goal and Obama Yang is ruled offside, we come out of there with a point. These are very fine margins and um, performing up to your capability and finishing your chances is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, um, just an, another thing on, on top of that is, you know, if Arsenal scores the first goal, we can't fall apart. You know, it, it felt like that happened, um, you know, in that game where they scored the first goal. And, and it's happened a couple times this season where the team has scored the first goal or a team has scored a goal and the team and Everton has fallen, fallen apart. Need to have that mental fortitude to, you know, keep moving forward and keep um you know, keep giving, you know, everything we have and, and not just folding after giving up one goal. But um, moving now, I mean, you look at Everton over recent games against the top six, obviously the most recent one being Chelsea, and it looks like they kind of have a blueprint blueprint for success against top teams. Uh, they got the victory against Chelsea a few weeks ago. What did What do you think Everton learned from that match that applies here? I, I think that they need to play two halves. Um, the first half against Chelsea was not very good. They were able to win the game by playing really well in the second half, but uh, it's kind of the the broad thing about Everton this season is they've been inconsistent. And if you can put together a full 90 minutes of good performance, uh, these players are talented on, enough to come away with some big results. And I think drilling even even more into into that match against Chelsea, the, the reason that it was a tale of, of two halves was that in the first half, Everton sat off and tried to play like there were Leicester City. Uh, and in the second half, they started to apply some pressure in the midfield. Uh, and and that was really the, the difference in the two halves. Now, you know, Marco Silva comes out after the game and says, you know, the way that we played in the second half was the way we practiced all week. And I told them at halftime that they had to change everything that they were doing. And I don't necessarily know if I buy any of that. Uh, but that's not the point, ultimately. The, the point is that they've seen, oh, you know, these top, these lower top six teams, you know, basically the teams uh, three through six, uh, are gettable. They've all got these pretty significant gaps right now, and Everton can afford to try to apply pressure to those teams in the midfield and, and sit a little bit higher because they've got a good midfield and, and one that can turn the match against Arsenal on its head in the same way it did against Chelsea in the second half that ultimately won them a, a, 
the big three points. Yeah, and and you know you look at you know just Everton's. I'm looking at Everton's fixtures right now uh, against the top six and, and really across the whole season. A lot of people, I think, you know, after uh, Everton was playing pretty well against top six teams. They had that draw against Chelsea before, obviously the just I hate to bring it up again, but the disaster at Liverpool. And then you know that's when things started to fall apart again. And a lot of people, I guess, it was a little bit of joke that I saw on Twitter, but. You know, wondering if, if, you know, things fix themselves, if we can get a good result against Liverpool the next time we played them. And ironically enough, since we played Liverpool and drew them 0-0 at Goodison, um, the Newcastle game was good until, you know, we decided that, you know, for 20 minutes we weren't going to play defense. And then Chelsea 2-0, West Ham 2-0. You know, it, it could be a real start of maybe finding some consistency and just needing to get over that hump. Uh, and get that Liverpool uh, memory out of their minds. But, hey, I'll take it if, if that's all it took um, and to finish this season strong, especially with three of the top six coming up. Um, but real quick, guys, before we finish up here, let's get some predictions for that match. And, Adam, we'll start with you. Oh, you know, I put together our outline for this. I've been thinking about the Arsenal match, and I – Still don't know what the hell I think is going to happen because I, I just I, I look at Arsenal's results and then I look at their lineup and I go, how the hell is this team pulling this off with the midfield and the back line that it's rolling out week in and week out? Um, but uh, Aubameyang and uh, and Lacazette are really, really good. Uh, I, I think I go 1-1. Uh, I, I just... I see Arsenal getting a, a goal at some point in the opening, probably in the first half, and I just don't think that Everton quite has the fortitude yet to bring it all the way back. Um, so I'm going to go Everton. Everton won Arsenal won. I, I'm in a similar mental mental place as Adam, but I'm a little bit more pe- pessimistic. I think that we're going to lose this match. Um, Arsenal have a little bit more to play for in terms of the Champions League spot. And a- as you said, our fortitude in terms of going down or that kind of thing and turning it around is not good. I'm going to say that Arsenal win 2-1. Yeah, I'm going to go along with you there, Chris, again. I mean... I'm typically pessimistic just because it's so hard not to be. Uh, but I say Arsenal 2-1 as well. But I think Everton put in a good showing. I think that they, you know, at least show us that there's, you know, again, for another week, that there's something there, that, that there's something that they're building. Uh, and just a good um, a good performance all around despite um, not picking up three points or, or even one point in the match. But real quick, before we finish everything up here, I think, uh, you know, there's one thing we really should hit on. Uh, and, and it's the Pickford situation that's uh, been brought up over the recent days. And guys, you know, we all know, uh, you know, Pickford involved in a little bit of a, a scrap out at a bar um, back, I believe, in Sunderland. Um, and, and, you know, I just want to get your opinions on, on what happened, what you think about Pickford and his reaction and, and just really – um, where you're left with Pickford after everything that's happened. Adam, let's go to you first. Oh, good. Yeah, throw to me first on the real easy topic. Nice, nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, look, uh, obviously it's, it's not a great look. Um, we've seen 
on the field um, that that Jordan is a guy who uh, perhaps more easily than than some uh, is is able to get swept up in in his emotions. Um, there was video from before the incident broke out of you know of Newcastle fans, presumably Newcastle fans anyway, uh, you know giving him a hard time. Nothing off you know nothing by any means off the rails. Kind of what you'd expect as a you know as a professional athlete going out in an area where you know that your old team's rivals are, are going to be out and, you know, have a go at you. And, and that's fine. Um, the, the kind of indication that I think has, has rolled out in, in the recent, the uh, more recent days since, since the incident happened, uh, is that, that some of the folks may have been having a go in a less, uh, amiable way, um, at his fiance who was present, um, Look, I'm not going to sit here and, and say that, you know, Jordan Pickford should be trying to have a go at somebody who's being a jerk to his fiance. But I'm also not going to sit here and say that if I was not in Jordan Pickford's shoes or you guys were not in, in Jordan Pickford's shoes, that if, you know, somebody was really uh, being unkind deeply to, to someone that, that you or I cared about, that we would behave any differently. So it's hard for me to to say, oh, you know. He can't, he can't be out there doing the things that he did. Yeah. And that's the thing because I, I don't think that the end result of the situation is all that unreasonable based on what we know now where his, his significant other is being verbally harassed and abused and that kind of thing. I would have responded the exact same way, but it kind of brings it back to me for, I don't mind the idea of, celebrities and professional athletes going out and having fun. I think they're certainly up, you know, they have that um, ability to do so and they should be able to enjoy themselves like any other person should. But if you're in Pickford's situation, I, I think the thing is that you just need to consider your decisions a little bit better. There's probably not, not a real need to go out in a bar in Newcastle or Sunderland or wherever it is where you, there's even a chance of being put in that situation because you know, it's a volatile situation. We just saw it back at St. James's park where he's getting berated on the field. Uh, I, I just think that may, maybe be a little bit more careful next time, but I'm, this is not in the end a situation that's, that really concerns me in terms of his long-term outlook, either with England or with Everton. Yeah. And I don't think that there's, a need for the FA or for the club again, based on what we know now and that information being correct. Obviously I think it's well within the FA's right and, and the club's right to dig into what happened and, and try to make sure that, that we've got a straight story on, on everything that went down based on, on everything that we've got and, and the video of it just kind of, you know, being pushing and shoving and, and then, the guys being being separated. I don't think that there's anything that anybody, you know, needs to do outside of probably having a, a conversation with Jordan that sounds a lot like the conversation that, that we're having right now. Uh, but I, I don't think that there's a need for anything bigger than that, provided that we've already got a pretty good understanding of what happened. Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's it's just a, a, a quick chat between Jordan and Marco or Jordan and Marcel Brands where you're just like, hey, Maybe go to a different bar next time. Maybe keep it close to home in Liverpool or 
go out in London after the Sunderland-Portsmouth game. You don't have to travel all the way up to the Northwest and get involved. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, you guys basically said it all. If, you know, if any of us were in that situation, we probably would have done the same thing. But at the same time, we're not under the scope that Jordan Pickford's under. And while, you know, if it is, if that is the, the story, that is the true story of what happened, um, you understand where he's coming from. Um, you also, like you guys have mentioned, you know, maybe don't, Put yourself in that situation in the first place uh, as a professional athlete when you know, you know, there's going to be a situation like that that could arise and there will be cameras and, and people knowing who you are and wanting to, you know, hurt you or hurt your image in any way that they can. So, you know, again, not something to be worried about, but uh, just, you know, something that, you know, could have been handled maybe a little bit better uh, prior to the situation. But it is what it is. It's, it's, you know, in the books now and we don't foresee any, um, actions being taken there. So, um, we'll see how it plays out. But for now, guys, we got Arsenal coming up. But, um, until then, we will let you guys go, guys. Thanks for joining me again and we'll talk to you guys next week.